0: You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, find yourselves back in uh, Job, uh, chapters 18 and 19. Again, we're in the the second cycle of um, uh, arguments here, and we come uh, to Bildad, uh, the second of three and Job's reply. Uh, 19, chapter 19 of Job is probably one of the most memorable sections of Job. It has that uh, line in it where Job seems to he he seems to have some understanding of the resurrection, as we'll come to that uh, later, but for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth even after my skin has thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. It's a very m- memorable line, but we'll see um, we'll see it in uh, context uh, here mm-hmm. Um, Well, let me open us up in prayer, and then let's look at Job. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come once again to this uh, great and majestic book, we do pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things as we uh, tackle these very difficult subjects of evil and your sovereignty. Uh, We pray, above all, we would just see Christ more clearly. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So, in chapter 18... Uh, Bildad rejoins uh, the argument, and his argument or his speech um, breaks down into two very easy uh sections. The first four verses is sort of a an introduction, and then verses three through twenty seven um, is almost this long tirade where he paints this very bleak picture um, of the fate of the unrighteous because you'll you'll know that Previously, we've been looking at Job and and what they talk about is the immediate retribution, so that when someone does something wicked, there immediately something happens. Um, Now Bildad is expanding upon that and speaking in many ways of what will happen to uh, the wicked. And it it begins to sound in some ways that he might have um, at least some concept of eternal judgment as we we look through this. Uh, But in verses 1 through 4, he comes back and Uh, It seems as if they generally introduce their statements with uh, calling the intelligence of the other one into question. Uh, He begins, how long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? He just begins there, his frustration, it seems, how Job is refusing to repent and to Refusing to listen. Um, We may even empathize with Bildad there if we've ever been ourselves in an argument with somebody and they refuse to listen. That is what uh, Bildad uh, feels right now. He feels that they are being being treated poorly. Uh, They are not being listened. They are only here to help. Um, At least that's what he thinks. Um, He'll find a rude awakening when we come uh, to Job's statements. But it's really verse 4. That um, To highlight here, he, he speaks about how um, you who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place. Uh, he is speaking, um, it seems to me, he's, he's speaking about a well-ordered universe, a universe where everything is in its place. And remember how the three friends have been arguing about immediate retribution, so that the universe is set up just like the laws of gravity. You have the laws of immediate retribution. And it seems, I think, that what Bildad is trying to argue is he's he's trying to really push Job into a, a difficult position by saying, you know the way the world runs. Um, you know that you're in this position. Ergo, you are a sinner. And the only alternative is to sort of break the entirety of, of the system, of breaking the entirety of the, of the world order. That's almost in an essence what you're, you're asking, Job, um, and so he's he phrases that as this question would we tear apart the universe uh, just so that you could be uh vindicated uh, and then he he moves on obviously the the answer for him is no uh the universe is well ordered and that is the principal part of this argument that's where they're they're running into almost talking past each other um so then he he goes in in verses 3 through 27 and it's Again, this is one of those things where the, the commentators are a little bit divided uh, in terms of what, what is Bildad um, saying, and apologies for the typo, it should be 5, verse 5 through 27. Um, is he, when we look at this, is he talking about Job as an unredeemable person, or is he just trying to paint such a vivid picture, like Jonathan Edwards' sinners in the hands of an angry God, in order that it would shock Job to his senses and that Job would repent. Um, and it could be a combination of both. Um, and so as we, we look at this, um, you can just see the way in which things keep kind of piling on top of each other. Um, verses 5 through 6 uh, speaks about uh, using the metaphor of like a tent where the lights going out and there's no fire. The, the, the wicked kind of find themselves and in, in living in this uh, place of total darkness and, and darkness is often used. As a uh, as a metaphor for death, so Job speaks about hiding himself in darkness, hiding himself in the the underworld, uh, if you will, hiding himself in the grave. Uh, and then uh, in verses seven through ten, uh, we see the the way in which the wicked lives their life. Um, they should be, according to build, that always looking around the next corner, always looking under their bed, if you will, that there are traps that are just ready to spring. And and you can see throughout. Um, he talks about how there's a net waiting. There's the mesh of the net out there. There's a trap. There's a snare. Uh, In verse 10, there's a rope that likely this is thinking of like a noose or a trap using a a rope. And then there's a trap for him uh, on the path. And what what he's talking about here is he's not talking about the the typical way that Proverbs speaks of the wicked lays a trap and falls into it. Uh, Bildad believes that. But he's just talking about the wicked live their life and that someday, at some point, some surprise, some calamity will end their life in a moment. And so the the wicked should be uh, living in uh, this constant perpetual state of terror for when they die. And and again, as you look through this, he's not altogether wrong in what he's explaining. Um, It really becomes at the conclusion of his little sermon um, that we find he's... Somewhat mistaken. And then uh, 11 through 14, he speaks of the wicked with these uh, terrors all around. Um, his strength is gone. Calamity is ready for him. Uh, whatever is happening is consuming the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. Uh, it's almost speaking of death there like a, a cannibal where it's it's just eating him. Uh, and then verse 14, he is ripped and torn from his tent, which he trusted. and He's brought down... To the King of Terror, and it seems verse fourteen is, um, is a hinge where we we've gone from the terrors that he's experienced in his life, the trap that has been laid for him, and now in verse fourteen that trap has been sprung. And and again the picture there, if you think of the picture of the Grim Reaper, right, this man in the tent, the trap is there, and death reaches his hand in and drags this um, wicked out wicked man out uh, to bring him down to the King of terrors. And then verses 15 through 16, there's this uh, dissolution uh, that happens. Um, No one, his tent is now left vacant, and even the ground that it was on where he dwelt is now scattered with sulfur, meaning it's now cannot ever be used. His roots dry up, his branch withers. And it's just this complete destruction. I mean, it's almost as if the picture is someone coming to remove all traces of his existence. And then verses 17 uh, through 20, his memory perished. He's thrust in the darkness. He's driven out of this world. Uh, He has no prosperity, posterity or progeny, no survivors. Um, And so he not only is he dragged down to the pit, uh, dragged down to the underworld, all trace of him is gone. No one remembers him anymore, and he has no offspring to continue his line. he's he is just completely wiped off the face of the earth and the face of history um, and then, in verse twenty, the west and the east, um, the entire world uh that was if you were almost on looking uh, at this event are just standing in shock and awe. I mean, you can almost imagine. Uh, a car crash happening right in front of you. That seems to be sort of what he's saying. This, this great calamity has befallen upon this wicked man. Uh, and then he concludes, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Uh, Christopher Ashe, in his larger commentary, he, he just continues to add this refrain. Well, what do you think about this, Job? Draw your own conclusions. You know, draw your own conclusions, Job. Um and again it seems as if he's trying to paint this really graphic picture. And I don't think he necessarily thinks of Job as unredeemable. It's likely he does have in mind that this is Job's ultimate and final destination, if Job will just not repent of the sin that, that has found him here. And I think as well, uh Bildad with his view of things seems to think that Job is not as bad as he could be, because he's still alive. <laughs> Whereas clearly his children were very wicked and they needed to be killed, but God has left Job alive. So there's something where he's not quite as bad um, as them. And so on the one hand, when you look at this, um, he, he really does seem to be painting a picture of hell, of just what awaits those who are unrighteous. Um, and it's a pretty graphic picture uh, when you think about this and the separation from God. And I put these little boxes here to just say, there's some that seems to be correct in this, but where there seems to be things that are wrong is this idea of redemptive or or innocent suffering. This has been a common theme that they just, this can't enter into their worldview. And I think as well, there there seems to be um, really a, a problem for them to understand the universe as it actually is. Whereas he, he wants to say, and his friends want to say, the universe is actually very well-ordered and very well-run, and there's not anomalies here, and there's not things that we can't explain. If you're wicked, punished. If you're righteous, blessed. Um, Christopher, Ash again, kind of said it's almost like a, a that little machine that gives you prizes out of it. You know, you put good in, and blessings pop out. You put bad in, curses come out. And it's this immediate retribution um and so there seems to be, I think, looking at Bildad though. There's, he wants to have justice, so eternal, an eternal justice, um, and a recognition maybe that the wicked don't immediately end up there. Um, but yeah, he he still seems to have no room. That would actually eventually account for for what Job is really dealing with, and ultimately Jesus. You know, you think of the, you think of the way in which the world we have for all all the things that we might complain about or all the things that don't make sense, we we simply have to come to terms with, as we'll see in, in Job 19, is the fact that there is evil in the world and there is a God who is good. And that's, for, for Bildad, he, doesn't, he can't square that circle. And Job, you'll see, has to come to the realization, It's coming to that realization of, how do I put these two things together? Um, and it's really, I mean, As far as theological quandaries go, why is there wickedness and sin in the world when God is loving and in sovereign and complete control is a bit of a sticky question. (laughs) But what he does seem to get right, I think, is that he does seem to have this idea of there's evil forces in the world. So it's not just wicked people. There seems to be evil forces. Now, what he means by the firstborn of death or the king of terror is just, we, we don't really know what he's referencing. It, it could be that he's picking up of um, like uh, the cultures around him. So Canaanite culture. So the, the God of death um, is in Canaanite culture is Mott as possibility that he might be thinking of that. Honestly, if this were written later, it probably would be, we'd be having talks of Hades in Greek mythology as the, the ruler of the underworld. So it's, it's possible that he has, that there are actually malevolent uh, forces uh, but nonetheless, there is a judgment for the unrighteous. And his picture is not that dissimilar to the way Jesus pictures it, as a as a fire that burns eternally, but never fully consumes, as of separation uh, from God and living in this place where your memory is cut off. And so I, I think Bildad again, there's some he gets right and there's some things he gets wrong. And so Job now responds uh, and it does seem that when you look at this in total, Job's a bit angry um, as he responds uh, to build that. And, and one thing you'll note too is that uh, this seems like one of the first times so far Job has not wished for death. And it seems as if he's he's working through this problem. And it, And it is interesting that it's in this section, he speaks of some idea of resurrection, some idea of a of a redeemer, and some idea of being vindicated ultimately. And so, and then he he's not wishing for death at this point. Um, but in verses one through six, uh, again, we kind of start off with the similar ways in which they they do. They spend the first bit of this uh, impugning each other, um, and he just begins. How long will you torment me? These ten times you have cast. Reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And and that's where we start getting to the crux of the argument. Job is is basically saying you're you're lying about me by saying that I'm a sinner. You are bringing uh, guilt upon yourself, and you're casting reproach upon me. And you actually need to be uh, ashamed of this. You know they're they're breaking uh, the ninth commandment. And then even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. And it's a little bit debated as to what exactly Job uh, means here in verse 4. Um, it could be simply that he's saying that even if I have sinned, which I, I think I tend to take it this way, even if I have sinned, uh, my sin, whatever it is, has not affected you and it's between me and God. And you, uh, you in, in verse 5, you seem to magnify yourselves. You, you, you seem to belittle me and exalt yourself in the midst of my suffering um, you want to make sure you've got all your theological arguments checked off. You, you are not here to provide me comfort. You're here to use me as an example in an argument. And you make my disgrace an argument against me. Again, they, they look at him. He's suffering. It clearly, the only answer for them is that it's because Job uh, is a sinner. And in uh, verse 6, uh, Job says, It is God who has done this. Has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Uh, and again, Job seems to be acknowledging the difficulty his friends have by saying, "It looks like," and he, as he goes through this, it looks as if he's a sinner facing retribution from God. Um, and so he's he's just acknowledging God has closed his net around me and put me uh, in this place. And for Job, he he finds himself in in a a catch twenty two. He finds himself with no good option available to him, because if he uh, just acknowledges that, he acknowledges his suffering as the consequence of sin, well, that's untrue. Um, the other is to then say, well, then I, I'm not guilty, in which case at that point he impugns God's justice. So Job is, is is really in a, a situation where it doesn't quite know how he can uh, extricate himself from this. And then verses 7 Uh, Through 20, um, he then starts speaking to, uh, continuing to speak to his friends um, and telling them about the ways in which God has attacked him as uh, a sinner. In verses 7 through 12, you just, you can see the third person, he has walled up my way. Um, He has taken my crown. He has stripped me down. He has, breaks me down on every side. Um, And my hope, he has pulled up like a tree. Um, Earlier, Job talked about a tree could regrow you know, you cut a tree and then it could actually regrow. But here the picture is God has taken that tree and ripped it, roots and all, from the ground. And it won't, it won't regrow. He breaks me down on every side. He kindles his wrath against me. He counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. So to Job is pictured in verse 7. He cries out, violence. Uh, he's, he's like a man in a dark alley on a street and all of a sudden muggers come to, to beat him up and to take his stuff and his money and possibly leave him for dead. The problem is the mugger is God. (laughs) This is the way that Job is, is picturing this, that God has, uh, set up all of this. Again, Christopher Ash used it in, in verse 12, talking about, you know, you imagine, you know, you're, you're out camping, And you're in your tent and all of a sudden you you hear all these sounds and noises and you look outside and the entirety of the British military has now encamped and encircled you. And you look to the sky, the entirety of the Air Force is there. There's tanks, there's troops, there's SAS, and there's you in your tent. And this kind of what is going on here kind of situation is what Job feels like. He feels like a city that's being besieged and, and it's by God. And in verses 13 through 20, uh, he just has this sad recounting of how um, all of his earthly help is gone. Um, from his relatives, to his close friends, to guests, to maidservants, um, to even his own servant, he calls but won't answer. I plead for him with my mouth for mercy. He's estranged, it seems, from his wife. She doesn't know him, um, from his own, uh, his own um, brothers and sisters. Uh, even young children despise him. So in a culture that would have obviously very much esteemed an elder, um, and it's certainly an elder of Job's capacity here, little children, you know, are harassing him. And his his intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love to turn against me. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. And it's verse 21, that, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends. The hand of God has touched me. Why do you let God pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? This cutting remark that should have silenced them at this point um, is only going to be used to make further ire. Uh, and so Job then uh, continues, though, uh, asking for mercy, and then in verses 23, 23 through 24, Uh, he starts to speak about ways in which uh, he will be vindicated. Uh, He wishes that his words were written down uh, in such a way that they could last longer than himself, whether that's just first writing them on a scroll um, or writing them on a a steel, one of those um, obelisks where you would carve it in, and so it would last. You know, if you go to the British Museum, you can find these still today. Um, and so he wants his words to last because he he knows for a fact that he's innocent, and so again he he's, he is in a strange situation where he can't figure out why he's being treated like a sinner when he's not a sinner in in this instance. Um, and then it's twenty five through twenty seven, which again these well known verses. And if you think about the the flow of the argument and the way in which Job counts God as his enemy, but desires Job to desires God to be his friend again. That that seems to be at the heart of it. That that's what is bothering Job is that he was once my friend, and now he's my enemy. Um, he has lifted his hand against me. Um, but then Job says, "For I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me." And just read that. And you start to ask those questions. What does Job mean by this? How much does Job know? Um, and yet, yeah, what is he saying? Does Job believe in a resurrection of the body and this life everlasting with God? And what does he mean by a redeemer? It's the, the word uh, that we find in Ruth. So Boaz is a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. This was someone who um, would... Social norms meant that this person would redeem you if you were sold into slavery or buy back your land or you know, basically they were the social network um, or they, they were the, the, the ways in which to um, help those in their close family proximity. Uh, but here he speaks of my redeemer lives and unlikely again meaning lives is in a sense of, of eternal and that he stands upon the earth. Uh, the picture here is standing in judgment so he's standing in, in a court, as it were, um, deciding, and he will be vindicating job. Job knows his integrity um, and then even though he speaks of his imminent death in other places, uh, even though his skin has been destroyed yet, it's just interesting in my flesh I shall see excuse me, I shall see God, I shall behold him and, and you know, you just look at this passage, and you think Job does seem to have at least a, a, a some understanding of a resurrection. It's it's likely my this is my guess, um, and you see this in 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 the Old Testament. They're they're less concerned about what happens when you die, the intermediary state. They're much more concerned about and looking forward to this great restoration of all things. Because even if you think of it, heaven is not is never meant to be the final destination because even in heaven you're a disembodied soul and the earth still isn't fixed and there isn't a land and a king eternal. Um, and so I think Job is probably working on that type of assumption that the world is broken, but God is good. And ergo, the world will be fixed at some point. Um, I think that is probably, so he, he, You know, if you were to ask him his full theology, you may not be able to figure out all of these things, but he's just working off of, like I said, my guess would be these types of um, assumptions of God's character and his integrity. And that even his death can't be the end of all things. Um, And then that brings verses 28 through 29, where um, he now adds a warning to his friends. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found uh, in him. That they seem to be just indicating, he's he's warning them if they continue to uh, impugn his character by saying he's a sinner. Uh, He says, verse 29, be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. So it's stern warning there uh, at the end. Uh, So as we we look at this this section here, again, I think um, there's that question um, of how to How to understand the universe, I think, is ultimately what Job and his friends are arguing. And you think of the way that um, Tim and I were just talking about this before, and you think of the way atheists will sometimes argue is that if God is all good and that fact there's evil in the world, then he can't be all powerful and if he's all-powerful because there's evil in the world, he can't be all-good. So it's, a, it's another catch-22. The, the atheist just goes, your, your God who is all-powerful and all-good can't actually exist. Um, and if you look at what Job and Bildad are arguing about here, there's a similar um, wrestling that they're trying to, to engage in. How can God be sovereign and good and evil exist? And Job really saying, how can an innocent person suffer and wicked prosper? Um, is, is what they're just trying to wrestle with. Bildad says, no, the world just works this way, and there's no, there's no ambiguity. It's all neat and tidy, and there's a little bow on it. Uh, but Job knows differently. Job knows that evil doesn't get its comeuppance right when it happens. Job knows that the innocent can suffer. Um, and so Job is trying to wrestle through that, and I think it's interesting that the conclusion seems to be, well... I'm righteous and God will vindicate me and my redeemer will be the one who helps me do it. <laughs> you know, it sounds as if, again, you've got God arguing with God for Job. So this, this redeemer seems to be almost like a, a, a um, like defense attorney or a barrister to come in and say, no, Job is actually um, uh, innocent of this. Um, so those are some of the, the theological questions I think they're wrestling with, and, and part of that comes down to we just don't really have a, a full picture, a full understanding of how God is good, and yet sin and evil exist, other than the fact that we know both are true. <laughs> and Job, if you think about the way the flow of Job goes, he doesn't get an answer to this question, and, and we don't really have a—we've we, we, I mean, got some— answers, Um, but, and again, you think of in terms of people suffering, right, all things work together ultimately for the good is not usually the best verse to lead with when people are in times of of deep distress and suffering, Um, but nonetheless, I think what we can think of sort of, if you were pastoral questions, you know, how do you suffer well? You think of what, you know, Job does seem to have hope of vindication and of resurrection, and I think that is. Helpful for when you suffer to say that, you know, if if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, then God is using you as an example to display His glory and His worth, which is what He's doing in Job's life. Um, but also, the the resurrection does mean that your suffering has a has a goal, a purpose, and an end, and where you are are vindicated, and following the path. Of Jesus, so those are just a couple of those things to be thinking of. Um, Any thoughts or questions or? You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk. For more, thank you.